Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. Look, we're kind of having to rely on investigative journalists to, to break these kind of stories when we could have, you know, proper inspections being carried out by the state or we could have a bigger role for trade unions. Hello, 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 and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. A very happy new year to you, our first episode of 2022. I'm Simon Sapper, and the voice you just heard was that of Alice Martin, who works for the Pensions and Investment Research Consultancy Limited. We have a great show lined up for you, as befits the start of a new year. We've got Basit Mahmood with his radical roundup, the stories about the union movement that you probably won't see in the mainstream media. We've also got Mel Sims setting up the landscape wonderfully when it comes to regulation and compliance in her thought for the week. And then as our featured guest, as I said, we've got Alice from PIRC. Now, by way of background, PIRC has been around for 30 years or more. Its remit is to conduct research into corporate governance and practices like uh, labour standards, employment standards and so on for the benefit of, say, pension funds and other investors who are looking to place their investment in reasonably sound enterprises. PIRC also conducts research into general trends in corporate governance amongst big multinational corporations in particular. So no one is really better placed to have a chat about labour market enforcement, labour market regulation, the level of compliance or non-compliance than someone like Alice Martin. So I very much look forward to having a chat with her later on in the show. Now to get the ball rolling for this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow. This week, Mel's looking at labour market regulation. Why is it important? Who's involved in setting the regulation? Who can you turn to to make sure that the standards that should be applied to actually are being met. Over to you, Mel. This week, I've been editing a chapter about trade unions that's due to appear in a book this year. It's a pretty normal thing for an academic to be doing, but the theme seems remarkably interesting to current debates about work. And the topic is about job quality and the role of unions in securing not just more jobs, but better jobs. And too often in that policy space, uh, a lot of the discussion is about what employers can do to improve or diminish the quality of our working lives. But in this chapter that I've written, I'm keen that we see job quality as being more broadly about how employment is regulated by all of the multiple pressures on the employment relationship. Yes, employers and managers are important, but so are laws, norms and expectations and, of course, collective bargaining outcomes. And unions act in all of those realms with the central objective of improving how we work. So in the chapter I've written, I argue that job quality should therefore be thought of as the outcome of a dynamic push and pull between different actors and the main important ones being the employer, the worker, unions and the state. And if we understand job quality in that way, we can't then just measure it in the normal way that we measure it, which is to ask a specific moment in time how much autonomy a worker has, how much effort they expend in their job, how much they get paid, etc. So ordinarily, there's a range of dimensions of job quality that are taken as a snapshot. And that leads many analysts to say these jobs are good jobs and these jobs are poorer jobs. But what I argue is that if we see it in this dynamic way in the round, we need to understand what leads to those outcomes. And we need to understand that those outcomes can change because of those pressures pushing and pulling in different directions and the bargains that are reached, both implicitly and explicitly, to get to those outcomes. 
So from this perspective, we need to recognise that unions have a dual role. Not only do they input into creating job quality, they also act to police job quality. So unions work to make sure that the deals are actually implemented on the ground and they make complaints and raise cases when they're not. So that double role for unions means that not only do they help create the terms under which our employment relationships take place, and that's true even in non-unionised workplaces because the effects of those laws and those norms are very strongly felt, they also work to make sure the rules are enforced. And that enforcement role of unions is absolutely crucial in pushing up job quality, particularly in low-paid sectors where some of the poorest quality jobs exist. So that challenge has probably become even more important with the challenges thrown up by the pandemic and the years ahead. Many thanks indeed, Mel. I think that is an excellent overview about why regulation is important, who's in a position to provide regulation, who's best entrusted to ensure that those standards are maintained. Because it is a hot topic, of course, if you have poor regulation, either because it's designed poorly or not implemented properly, the people who suffer are the people at the bottom of the pile economically, the people in low-paid, precarious employment. In fact, you don't have to be in low-paid, precarious employment to suffer from poor regulation or poor poor compliance. You think of health and safety, for example. Accidents can happen in any workplace at any time and with any degree of, of severity. And I think it's really interesting that the Interim Director of Labour Market Enforcement, this is a, a post that's responsible, as we'll discuss with Alice, for overall compliance uh, by regulatory bodies and by companies with those those regulations. The Interim uh, Director of Labour Market Enforcement, who's, who's just completed this term, term of office, uh, Matthew Taylor, name that will be familiar to many listeners of this of this podcast. He writes in his report that was delivered just before Christmas that the UK has had a strong record on job creation over recent years, but quality of work matters as much as quantity. Minimum standards that are demonstrably enforced are the bedrock of a healthy labour market. I urge the government not to lose sight of this. So if we've set out the kind of conceptual landscape about why regulation and why compliance is necessary and useful and who's best placed to to provide that and who's most trusted to provide that. What's it like on the ground at the moment? That's what we'll be discussing with Alice Martin in just a sec. So let's continue this discussion about regulation, labour standards, compliance, non-compliance and so on. And allow me to introduce to you Alice Martin from PIRC. Alice is an expert in the employment standards of corporations, and so is absolutely well-placed in PIRC to offer a view about what life is like on the ground when it comes to that thorny, thorny question of compliance. I started off by asking Alice if she could tell us a little bit about PIRC and her role in it. Yes, certainly. So um, at Perk, we carry out corporate governance research. So we tend to work on behalf of investors and responsible investors, so pension funds, often um, local authority pension funds or trade union pension funds. Um, and on behalf of them, we look at where they have holdings in companies. And then we look at the kind of corporate practices of those companies and try and take a position on whether we think they're behaving well or not. Um, as you can imagine, Often they're not. Um, yes. I focus on labour rights issues, so um, the the kind of workforce practices of, of, of major companies. So I look at where there might be uh, worrying practices, even when they're kind of uh, you know compliant with the law, they may be problematic. Um, and so we work a lot with with trade unions to try and get a kind of deeper understanding of what goes on in in these companies where there are trade unions present. And otherwise, we look at uh, any kind of data that we can get our hands on, so enforcement data, violations data here in the UK, uh, but but internationally as well, to try and build up a profile on on what this company is doing in terms of its its kind of workforce treatments. Um, but colleagues of mine will be looking at kind of other areas as well, whether it's the environment or um, tax compliance, that kind of thing. So I mean, already we can see that 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 compliance is is obviously important for, for workers and and for unions. Because the consequences of non-compliant means that people are not getting what they're legally entitled to. There's an ethical and moral dimension as well in terms of 
where their pension fund is invested or the work they themselves might might be doing. And of course, that feeds through into the overall economic prosperity and productivity of the uh, of the country as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there are different reasons why um, pension fund holders might care about where their money ends up. Uh, some of it is just, uh, as you say, kind of ethical or political or moral, you know, that they don't want to be funding companies that are deliberately kind of, you know, in, in problematic or exploitative relationships with workers. And um, there are also kind of financial materiality arguments to be made as well. So the kind of like win-win, um, which at Perk, we, we, we try to be quite balanced about and we can be fairly sceptical of. So um, what I'm getting at here is the idea that, you know, if you uh, always make the right decisions in terms of your workforce, you, the company will always profit more and shareholders will, you know, will gain from that. We think whilst there are lots of examples of, you know, companies doing the right thing and therefore it making the company more profitable or more sustainable over the long time, over the long term. Um, I don't think there's always necessarily a win-win uh, and we try and be realistic about that in the work that we do and, and kind of take a stance on what the right thing to do is, what what kind of human rights and workers' rights might be at stake um, and we kind of build out from there. I think in terms of having, I suppose, what, what HR professionals might call a kind of dashboard, that's, mm. that's really important because some of those things that you've spoken about will be warning lights because they indicate there are problems in other areas and some of them will be good things in and of itself. And some of them may look to be good things, but actually there's no follow through in terms of in terms of good employment practice as opposed to just good economic figures for the company. Yeah, exactly. And, and kind of the, one of the main difficulties in this whole area is that often we have to rely on what companies tell us they're doing. And uh, obviously they, they're in, they have an interest in, in telling the best story they possibly can about what their practices are. And um, so in their own annual reporting, you, you know, you'll see lots of kind of um, nice graphics, stats and figures and quotes from employees telling us that, you know, they, they, they're carrying out all of these fantastic programs, training programs, um, employee voice programs, staff surveys, etc. And, you know, while some of that can, can be OK, it's not really giving us the hard data that we need to really understand what's going on beneath the bonnet, what the kind of decisions this company is taking over its workforce practices, where it sits within its industry. So, you know, if it's a big hotel chain, is it is it the worst of the worst among hospitality um, employers or is it kind of slightly ahead of the curve? It's very difficult to, to get that kind of um, evidence-based and data-driven view of companies because we have so little kind of regulated disclosures about, about the kinds of things they're doing. And so that's why we rely a lot on on kind of relationships and you know building up our own intelligence and um, sources whether that's through trade unions or regulators or journalists in some cases local journalists um so we we have to kind of source our our, our information from from loads of different areas and, and one of those is you know the, the government's own disclosures so so public disclosures on their their enforcement practices um, and I think that's that's something we're, we're going to be talking a bit about today. Ab ab absolutely, because the need for an independent voice, almost independent verification of what companies uh, may or may not be tell telling you and your, your colleagues, can, can come principally through two ways, I guess. It can come either through regulatory requirements or mm -hmm. through active trade union organisation. Now, active trade union organisation, obviously, listens to this podcast, will know all about and will know all about its values. But the regulatory environment is sometimes a very necessary not just a backstop, a front stop almost, if there are areas where union density is low or non-existent and can also supplement the work that unions themselves do to, to try and introduce some some regulation on the on, on the workforce. So in the UK, of course, we, we, we've just had, as we're recording this, the announcement of the new uh, Director for Labour Market Enforcement, Margaret Beals, uh, a post that's lain empty in a substantive way for the best part of two years since David Metcalf uh, re retired. What does the regulatory landscape look like Alice in in the UK when we talk about labour market enforcement what will Margaret Beals for example be responsible for doing effectively? Sure so there's been talk for a while of um, having setting up a single enforcement body in in the UK so bringing together some of the existing enforcement bodies that we have into into kind of one you know, Uber enforcement body. So at the moment we have, uh, there's a number of them, I can, I can sort of go through them in turn. We have um, the health and safety executive, which uh, 
does what it says on the tin, looks looks into the, the health and safety practices of, of companies, both in terms of how um, workforces are treated, but but the wider public as well. Um, they're not the health and safety executive is not going to be subsumed into this this new single enforcement body. So they'll be working alongside it. Um, the the bodies that, that that will be brought into it. Uh, include the GLAA, so the Gang Masters and Labour Abuse Authority. Um, so they are the, the body that are charged with looking into labour exploitation, forced labour, modern slavery, um, predominantly in kind of high-risk sectors in the UK, um, which are, tend to be around kind of food supply chain so food processing agriculture shellfishing those kinds of areas yeah i think it was the it was the morecambe bay tragedy wasn't it in 2006 that led to the glaab being set up and actually margaret beals has just finished chairing the gla to move into the the director of labor market enforcement role so there's obviously a knowledge of the sector that she has there Exactly. Yeah, that that is her background, and um, and I think she's been strong in that role as, as far as I can tell. Um, and so at the moment, the GLA, GLAA has a kind of licensing system for certain for companies in in those kind of high risk sectors that I've mentioned. But they are now planning to kind of expand their remit to have more kind of voluntary protocols with companies in sectors that are maybe less high risk but still have serious issues um, whether it's construction or, or retail logistics transport um, so that's one of the the bodies that will be moving into the, the the single enforcement body the others are the employment agency standards it's inspectorate that look at um, job agencies recruitment agencies um, and have quite a kind of tight remit looking into um, which companies should be allowed to act as as recruitment agencies, uh, and, and also also what you can use uh, employment agency labour for as well. Like you, I think it is still the case that you can't specifically recruit people in order to break strikes. Yes, yes, that's still yes. in place, isn't it? Um, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, it is that I, I seem to think there are, there are some ways around it that that, yes, that, that, yeah, that exist <laughs> and that uh, are used. Um, yeah, and, and one such way is that, in fact, I, you know, I was just before we we started this discussion, I was doing a little bit of digging, and and I find out that there are only nineteen inspectors attached to the Employment Agency Standards Inspectorate, and you can't do an awful lot of inspecting a lot with, of muscle. 19, <laughs> with just nineteen inspectors. I'm sorry, I though. I, I keep I keep on butting into your flow. No, no, no. Apologies, Alice. It's, no, no, it's it's all interesting, and yeah, no, I, I think one of the main criticisms is that these these bodies are massively under resourced and understaffed. Um, it was probably one of the the those with the the most staff is, is the health and safety executive, um, the, the biggest, and and they've obviously massively struggled during the pandemic to do the kind of inspections mm. and interventions that that've been needed. Um, yeah, and just to finish on, on the kind of single enforcement body, the other kind of area that will be brought into it will be a national minimum wage. Uh, kind of verification and, and looking for instances of wage theft, essentially, or underpayment of of minimum wages. So that's HMRC that 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 do that currently in well in conjunction with Bayes, um, and that the new kind of joined up enforcement body will, will be doing all of this. Um, but and the big but here is that whilst there is lots of talk about this kind of new new agency being set up and everything being streamlined and and, and kind of empowered, there is very little in in the way of detail about when that will happen, what kind of budget that agency will get, um, how they how the government thinks it will actually you know bolster bolster enforcement that you know there doesn't appear to be any. Uh, or, or much kind of additional legislation coming around it that, that would give kind of extra powers. There are specific areas that it wants to target, which you know it's just promising. So umbrella companies has has come up as a as a kind of area of of, of interest after unions and others have have campaigned for years about the uh, exploitative practices of, of these kind of intermediaries between employment agencies and and kind of contracting companies. Um, so, so that you know, this, this agency will have some some interesting areas that it will hopefully be getting its um, teeth stuck into. But it doesn't feel like uh, there's it, there's really been a priority put on this area in terms of resources. So, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, what do you feel are the indicators that the plan for a single enforcement body has been successful? And as you say, the fact that it was 
it was announced in June that they were going to go ahead uh, with mm. the creation of the SEB. Uh, here we are nearly six months later with the appointment belatedly of, of someone to oversee the working of the SEB, but no indication of budget, resourcing, how the one-stop shop concept will, will, will work. I suppose we have to judge, we have to, we can only judge the government on what it actually does or doesn't do. Um, and at the moment we're, we're kind of waiting with bated breath, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so some of the some of the kind of talk around it um, from the government and 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 otherwise from commentators would be that the the aim will be to, to kind of increase the flow of intelligence that they're getting directly from from workers and, and other stakeholders. And um, but as far as I can tell, the only the kind of way they intend to do this is streamlining the user journey. So maybe having a nicer online portal that you know, brings together some of these agencies' functions in one place and people can kind of contact it directly. I'm not convinced that in and of itself will increase the, you know, the flow of, of, of complaints and, and contacts coming in. I think that um, the, the reason that it's difficult to get intelligence out of, of workforces that are the most vulnerable is because they are the most vulnerable and because these, you know, this kind of exploitation is usually happening in sectors where there isn't much of a union footprint, um, as you alluded to earlier, but also just there's a there's a very kind of thin agency generally that that worker might have over its um over their kind of employment rights and their and their ability to speak up in, in the company. So I'm not convinced that without any kind of additional resourcing for, for actual inspectors and for and for the enforcement agency to drive these kinds of investigations themselves, I'm not convinced that just sort of making it easier for people to get in touch will really will really change things. Um, but I'd, I'd like to be proved wrong and I'd, I'd like, you know, to find out in a few months' time that actually, you know, there is going to be additional resource, there are going to be extra inspectors, um, et cetera. But at the moment, it's, yeah, it, it's quite unclear. Um, and just to make a comparison maybe with with another country of a similar size to us, I mm -hmm. mean, France, maybe it's maybe it's an unfair comparison <laughs> given, and we know that France is generally stronger on on kind of labor law and um you know has 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 a much kind of the state is much more involved in in the regulation of working practices in 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 France and they have whilst they don't have very high union membership they do have you know massive collective bargaining reach um almost all workers in in the private sector are covered by a collective bargaining agreement of some kind because they have you know the kind of sectoral sectoral agreements as well um so it maybe is an unfair comparison, but they are very similar in terms of the size of the population and working population. And they have um, a budget of almost 200 million with over 1,500 labour inspectors that conduct a mix of, of kind of reactive and proactive investigations. Wow. In, and that's just for the private sector. So they have a whole other um, kind of department working on public sector regulation. Um, and... I actually don't have comparable staff for the UK because it's it's very difficult, partly because we have this fragmented system. It's difficult to know um, how many people are working in each of these bodies. But I think, you know, you gave an example for one of them earlier. Was it how many the, people? The, the, employment, the Employment Agency Standards Inspector, apparently, I read, has currently 19 inspectors, one nine. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think that we're going to be um, leaping up to 1,500 very quickly. Um, yeah. So, and, and you know, and, and, like I said, maybe it's an unfair comparison to make, but I think there are other kinds of um, standards that it would be nice um, to see set out. For example, maybe it's not for the number of labour inspectors we're going to have, but it's for the number of times that employers might be inspected over a year or you know that there are I think there would be some kind of reassuring targets that that we could see that would let us know that this um enforcement body would actually have you know something that it was reaching for at the moment it just seems fairly fairly vague yeah I mean I think that's um I think that's an excellent point you make Alice because the the, the measures for knowing what's going on, knowing whether the, whether the policy is being effective are really, really important. It may be an inspection-led regime is not going to deliver as much as, say, I don't know, say, um, 
uh, a public awareness campaign. I'm speaking hypothetically, so I have hypothetically there. And in reality, probably one needs a mix of all those all those components. And the and the trick will be to get the balance between inspection, expectation that you're not going to be able to hide malpractice or non-compliance, plus general awareness that knows that so that everyone knows what their rights are and therefore is able to assert them. That might be the best mix. But of course, that last bit, being able to assert your rights, depends on having uh, the security of an employment contract. A lot of people don't. Security of hours worked. Many people don't have have that. Uh, A strong advocate for, for collective voice being backed ideally by government, which is arguably not the case at the moment. <laughs> more than more than argu- arguably. Yeah. Um, what do you think? And I've lost my train of thought. Which is it's really good that this is not going out live as I've lost <laughs> my train of thought. But um, to what to what extent do you think uh, a compliance uh, a compliance culture can be developed without that sort of support in the form of government policy? Um. I think that's a good question. I think I think we would need um, we would still need some kind of uh, improved government policy, maybe in other areas. So, in terms of what companies had to disclose, for example. So, if if we want if we want kind of more voluntary compliance by companies, um, we want companies to generally do better with their working practices. Um, I think we, we need to know what they're doing. So we would need more, yeah, more regulation around the types of things they have to report on. So there have been some positive changes in this over the last few years. Um, the corporate governance code is, is the kind of code that governs what uh, listed companies are required to disclose publicly in their in their kind of annual reports. And there have been positive steps. Um, so we now have uh gender pay gap reporting is, is is mandatory so we we now have you know we're now told what large companies well what actually all employers are doing by way of um you know addressing the gender pay gap in in their in their companies and and, and kind of what that gap is year on year and you can kind of track the changes so that's been a useful change um also pay ratio so ceo to average worker pay ratio is now a mandatory disclosure within the corporate governance code i say mandatory it's the code is 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 not a mandatory code it's something that companies can can kind of choose to adhere to or not um on a kind of comply and explain basis but generally you know large private companies do do comply to the code and want to be seen to be complying to the code yeah i imagine i mean if you're if you're not complying with that code people are going to say why not <laughs> yeah 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 um and it's part of our job but you know part of the work we do is is kind of checking that companies are complying with the code if they say they are actually looking into you know what they're disclosing and, and, and checking that that's that is the case um so so yeah so pay ratios so you know looking at kind of pay inequality within company we can now do that with with uk companies as of you know the last couple of years um so i think that that's that's good progress but one of the things that was um called for in the original good work plan that that Matthew Taylor kind of spearheaded, which is, you know, the origins of of some of these changes. So the the single enforcement um, body was a recommendation, you know, within Matthew Taylor's um, uh, review and and reporting process. And um, what was I going to say about that? Yeah, sorry. One of the recommendations that, that, that was made in the good work plan was that um, the corporate governance code would be a bit stronger on disclosures around employment models. So companies would have to disclose whether they, you know, what portion of their workforce were agency workers, you know, what kinds of indirect employment they were using. Did they have, you know, were they engaging people in the kind of gig economy style with with self-employment? Are they using agency workers as as a huge chunk of their workforce? Um, And I think that was a really good recommendation to have to, to make. And it would have made my life a lot easier in terms of, you know, trying to lift the bonnet on on what these companies are up to um but it wasn't it wasn't taken up by the government as far as i know it wasn't one of the recommendations that 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 has that they're going to meet well we we wait to see what's going to be in the employment bill if we ever if we hit that bill ever sees the, the light of day and I, I kind of worry that there's so much there's so much that, that legitimately could be included in it um but if everything that could be included in it is included in it, it's going to be such a weighty sort of almost nebulous sort of thing. Mm. It's going to be, 
it's going to be in, in process. In legislative process terms, it could be, could be, could be quite difficult. Um, do you think, what, what do you think can be done to minimise what's often called accidental non-compliance? We hear this a lot in the HMRC's work about enforcing uh, the national minimum wage and national living wage. And, and listeners, you'll know, uh, and I should disclose that I'm a member of the Low Pay Commission, so I, I need to be careful and balanced in what I say here. Uh, but the often people who, who fall foul of that HMRC regulatory activity say, well, it was an accident. We didn't mean to. We didn't mean, need to do it. It was just when you, you know, when you did the survey work or when when you inspected this. Do do you have any sympathy for the notion of accidental non-compliance? Um, and it, whether you do or not, what can be done to minimise it? Um, I don't know. I don't have much sympathy, but I think I, I probably have some scepticism as well about the kind of effectiveness of, of the national minimum wage in actually setting better wages or, you know, setting decent wages in the economy. Um, it's, you know, in the UK, we've taken that kind of legislative route to wage enforcement um, through through having something like a national minimum wage, which in many ways is, has been a good thing. Um, but I think if we had stronger collective bargaining or other ways, other means by which workers, you know, were, were more empowered to set their own wages, then we we wouldn't need to rely on this this kind of um, this bottom line. Because I think what happens when we have this this kind of minimum standard is you do get an awful lot of companies that just sit situate themselves right, you know, right at that level. And you'll know more about this than me as through your role on the low pay commission, but. I think that's where a lot of these kind of accidental breaches come from. It's because um, companies feel it's okay to pay the absolute minimum they can get away with. Um, and therefore, when they then kind of, I don't know, charge charge their workforce for uh, their uniform or they do something a bit funny by kind of spreading spreading irregular hours over a month or whatever it might be it it, it then means that they they show up as as having breached the national minimum wage and, and probably one way of avoiding that would be to just pay people more so that they're not sitting right at the, on 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 that on that line um i do know that 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 the government wants to maybe move away from naming and shaming every single employer that that you know that that, that breaches um, the minimum wage because it, it there's a worry that if you kind of name and shame all of them it, it takes the attention away from those who are who are you know egregiously and intentionally mm. kind of deliberately doing this um, which I think you know makes sense to. To some extent, uh, but I would worry that we then end up with a culture where you know there's a kind of handful of of baddies called out, and the rest of you know the swathes of the private sector that that deem it acceptable to pay these very low wages just sort of um, get off quite lightly. Yeah, I mean, there's also the argument that actually reputational damage is is marginal at, at best. I mean, we were both, we, you, know, you were speaking at, I was in the audience for, for a very interesting Resolution Foundation event recently about the extent to which reputational risk can drive corporate behaviour. And in terms of compliance or non-compliance, it seemed to be, it seemed to be very, at a very low level. Yeah, certainly. I think one of the points that the report made really well was that reputational risks matters to companies when there's a material risk attached. So when they're mm. going to, you know, there's a risk of some kind of financial harm and that can come from um, fines for, for non-compliance. But in the UK, that, that doesn't happen often. And those fines tend to be small if we compare it to the US, say, where their, their enforcement agencies are are very empowered and, and then dish out huge fines to companies, um, then we do look fairly weak on, on that stuff. A, a colleague of mine from the US referred to our culture as a slap on the wrist culture compared to, you know, compared to their kind of... <laughs> compared, to, um, compared to some other form of physical, um, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so that's, that's kind of one area that a company might, I mean, that, that's, yeah... Um, that's one example of kind of financial harm that a company might suffer. But in terms of reputational harm, there are there are ways they could be hit financially. One might be that you know customers start boycotting that 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 company. And I think what the Resolution Foundation report found was that that's just very uncommon, and that generally people don't move away from brands 
because uh, because they've realised that they're not treating their work as well. Um, but there are there are other there are other kind of financial levers that could be pulled. So some are you know investors getting spooked and wanting to divest from a company because of 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 this kind of reputational issue and because of the, their kind of track record on workers' rights. So some some kind of poignant examples of that. Um, that, that we that we kind of talked about in the event were the Boohoo scandal and the the, the Leicester workers who were found to be paying way under the, the national minimum wage in factories um, producing garments for for the online retailer yeah. Boohoo and uh, a number well w- one of their major investors divested off off the back of of the Times newspaper breaking that story um, and then there was the delivery kind of debacle that happened earlier this year where the gig economy company wanted to list itself on the London Stock Exchange um, but it massively kind of was over, overpriced itself and the share price plummeted on on the first day because a number of big asset managers and investors um, boycotted the company over its working practices and said we're not go- we're not going to buy shares in this company because of its dubious track record um, and our, our position at Perk is that you know, there were, there were lots of reasons why actually a number of those big asset managers and investors didn't want to invest in delivery. And, and it was kind of useful for themselves to to come out um, glowing from it and say that the reason they were doing it was because of workers' rights. Actually, it was, it was to do with a whole raft of things. But yeah. I think there are in, interesting examples of how a company can get hit um on this stuff but it you know doesn't happen often yeah no i mean i, I think i think you're absolutely right i mean the two seem to be two parts of that equation the first the first is yeah it's great if workers rights are being mainstreamed as a touchstone for which on which you base your investment decisions mm. uh, but as you say it may just be a convenient cover for for other things but the second thing is, the second thing is is how you communicate that how you manage to get workers' rights into that position more more solidly than than perhaps yeah. it, it, it is at the moment. And the other thing to remember, I mean, as Sarah O'Connor's fantastic reporting in the Financial Times uh, made clear about the about the Leicester garment garment factories, is, is that if you are really committed to working outside the law, then you can do so. Yeah, uh, but that was it was ever thus was that was ever thus. I'm not saying that you could do so endlessly or, or or brazenly, but you can certainly do so for a long period of time before you might get court i mean yeah as i understand it it was an open secret you know in the industry people knew companies knew this this was happening um and and it yeah it took a journalist to break it or a few journalists to break it and i I think that's a problem that um that we're kind of (laughs) having to rely on investigative journalists to, to break these kind of stories when we could have you know proper inspections being carried out by the state or we could have um a bigger role for trade unions in, in kind of um yeah pushing like, this stuff out i mean i couldn't i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree agree agree, agree more it won't surprise you to, to hear me say but of course the, the areas that we've spoken about in terms of gender pay gap in terms of uh in terms of minimum wage compliance all that's all that sort of stuff i mean that that that's just that's just kind of part of quite a long a, a long list certainly a much longer list if you think about Et waiting times, for for, for mm. example, uh, and, and various other other issues as well. Then the whole culture of compliance is is, I think, coming under the spotlight like never before. And that's, I mean, that's yeah. and that's partly because of the work that you you and your colleagues at Perk are doing. So many thanks to you for that. Yeah, I think tribunals is, is a really interesting area, and this is one that. Um, that hopefully the single enforcement body will do a little bit more about. So one of the the things that um, I've read they intend to do is name and shame um, companies that haven't paid out compensation within a reasonable time frame. Um, obviously, that's once the case has even got to the tribunal. So we know there are already delays ahead of that, and we know there are, you know there are already so many workers not even going to tribunal because they they're not aware that they can or that it's you know. Um, they don't have people on their side supporting them to do so um but it sounds like kind of call, yeah calling out companies for repeat repeat breaches or for just not paying out on on um those those compensation claims um that, you know we will now be hearing more about that hopefully um something we're doing at perk is is tracking tribunals data so looking at what 
data is out there um, on kind of the yeah the, the court cases um, that have taken place over the last sort of four or five years. I think we've got data for before that it's not digitised, so you'd actually have to go to the courts and gather up the, the paper documents and, and digitise it. But I think we've got data now for um, for the past four or five years, and we're trying to make some sense of that and link those cases back to. Uh, the 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 kind of main employer involved because often the cases will come under a kind of subsidiary name or a different brand name but you know we want to track it back to the the group the kind of parent company that is responsible and then we're we're aiming to kind of build a profile on on some of the biggest companies who have been um involved in 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 these um employment rights breaches and we're, we're doing a similar thing with health and safety executive notices as well um, so that you know there is data out there that, that can enable us to to build a, a clearer picture but at the moment it's it's difficult to get hold of and it's not really presented in a way that allows you to, to yeah. make it stick on the companies yeah that, I mean that both those projects sound tremendously interesting and very very worthwhile when do you hope to have some results from them so in in the new year probably spring we'll have a kind of beta version of our workforce data set and so so on top of the tribunals data and the health and safety executive data we're also looking at what companies themselves are disclosing through their annual reports and that is a very labor-intensive manual I job that involves people are literally having to read um a lot of waffle about um what companies want to tell the world about themselves but sort of cut through the waffle and find you know the actual interesting points of, on their working practices um so yeah it's, it's it's a big kind of data um organizing process really but yeah we should have something to show for it by spring next year that, that's wonderful shining a light into some very dark places indeed thank you very much alice thank you so much for, for spending time with us and sharing your insights it's been a, been a pleasure talking to you and good luck for the year ahead thanks very much thanks simon and i'll talk to you soon well, my thanks to Alice for a fascinating discussion. I mean, my goodness, we covered a lot of ground during that during that chat. I hope it's all been good food for thought for you. Made you think about the nature of regulation, the importance of compliance, the fact that these are minimum standards after all. There's no maximum standard. These are minimum standards. And the crucial role that unions and all of us as individual members of unions play in ensuring those standards are enforced, refined, appropriate, improved, and so on and so forth. And there's all sorts of issues that, that go on in there. First of all, <laughs> the, the, the relationship between unions and the enforcement bodies is not always a smooth or comfortable one. I mean, just, just recently we've heard news that in the US, health unions are actually suing the US equivalent of the health and safety executive. Uh, I don't have all the details, I'm not sure all the ins and outs, but clearly if the relationship's got to that level... There are problems. There are clearly there are clearly problems. Secondly, and it flows directly on from uh, the discussion that we had with the TUC's Nikki Pound in our last Union Dues episode, where you'll recall we talked about the importance of gender pay gap reporting, the importance of ha- the importance of having information out there published in the public domain that can be used to encourage compliance, to to enforce compliance amongst people who would rather all sorts of information about non-compliance or dodgy practices are kept in the shadows are kept kept in the dark so it's not just the employment standards agency it's not just the gangmasters or authority it's not just the hmrc uh, inspectors who are being brought into the debate about compliance it goes wider than the people who are going to make up the new single enforcement body it goes right the way through collective bargaining right the way through labor law the right the way through a number of 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 issues so it includes things like gender pay includes waiting times for for employment tribunals these are all about enforcement of labor standards which should be kind of intuitive should be second nature should be hardwired in to to what we're dealing with so you know it it worries me going back to uh going back to that statement from matthew taylor that i mentioned before we had the chat with 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 alice let me quote more from his introduction to uh the uh, the report he submitted to government. Uh, he says, I leave office concerned that the government has not fully grasped the nature of the challenges or the scale of the opportunity provided by the single enforcement body. I very much hope that 
the strategy of the of the Office of Labour Market Enforcement will help to address this and that the coming period will see our system of labour market compliance and enforcement continue to adapt or improve. So if the government doesn't get the full range of what's happening with the single enforcement body, how can the people who are going to make up the single enforcement body going to have, have a clear idea? And, and just by the way, we should note that Matthew Taylor's report was submitted on the 30th of January 2021 but not published until the 13th of December, 2021. Hmm. So I suppose two takeaways from all this. The first is that the single enforcement body, the SEB, is surely going to happen in some form or other. I mean, too much water has gone under the the, the bridge for that to be rowed back from now. But what's going to be the level of resourcing? What's going to be the precise terms of reference? How is it going to be able to improve labour market enforcement that's the acid test isn't it that's the first thing and the second thing is when all is said and done when all is said said and done we can't rely on anyone but ourselves to fly the flag for decent employment standards yes there is an interest in employers in having decent employment standards because labor turnover will be less productivity will be higher and so on but we know not all employers see the world that way it's up to us as trade unions as individual trade unionists to make sure that there is decent, sustainable labour standards wherever we go. Simple as that, or difficult as that, I suppose. What do you think? Has that made you think? Has that given you some ideas, given you food for thought? Do you agree with what Alice has said? Do you agree with what I've said? If you agree or disagree, you've got a point of view, you want to make a contribution, what's labour market regulation like in the country where you are while you're listening to, to this? We'd love to hear from your experiences. We'd love your contributions to the show. Please join the debate, join the discussion. You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at jewsunion. And if you head over to the makesyouthink.com website, in the blog section of that website, you will find the companion blog post to this very podcast. It contains links, signposts, background, all the stuff that we've been discussing with Mel, with Alice, all the stuff we're about to discuss with Bazet as well. You can find it all in that blog post. Makesyouthink.com is where you need to go. And now it is indeed my great pleasure to welcome, for the first time in 2022... Bazit Mahmood. Bazit, the editor of Left Foot Forward, is here with his Radical Roundup. Thank you so much, Simon. Now, we've got quite a few interesting stories on this week's Radical Roundup. And if we start off with what's happening in Coventry now, Coventry Council's failure to address the low pay of its refuse collection drivers is set to lead to an escalation in strike action after Unite, the country's leading union, announced a total of 19 new strike dates in the increasingly bitter bin dispute. Now around 70 drivers began strike action after Coventry Council informed Unite that it would not make an improved offer and that an offer which had previously been rejected by workers was no longer on the table. At last minute talks held between Unite representatives and Coventry Council on Tuesday the 4th of January. Now Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham says that Unite members of Coventry Council have been forced to escalate the industrial action due to the Council's total failure to enter into meaningful negotiations. Now sticking to the theme of trade unions, new and interesting research published by the Trade Union Congress along with Commonwealth and High Pay Centre shows that UK workers get comparatively little benefit from share dividends. And this is despite common claims that they do. Now the report, Do Dividends Pay Our Pensions, finds that the proportion of UK shares directly held by a UK pension fund fell from almost 1 in 3 in 1990 to less than 1 in 25 by 2018. Now that's a decline of over 90%. And over, the, over that same period, ownership of UK public companies shifted from UK pension funds to foreign owners and investors whose identities are often obscured by lax reporting rules. Now the TUC's General Secretary, Francis O'Grady, says that working people deserve a fair share of the wealth they create. They should come through wages, pensions and reinvesting profits to safeguard the future of the firm and its workforce. That's all from me in this week's Radical Roundup, but you can find the full Radical Roundup on Wednesday's Left Foot Forward. Thank you so much, and back to you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed, Bazit. And you know what, listeners, I never know what stories Bazit's going to pull out of what is quite a, a huge pile of union stories that, that are up for options. But that thing about shared dividends is actually not not really being worth the grief or the hype that they uh, that they attract. That's that's 
that's good to know, isn't it? And that turns some conventional wisdom on its head. And of course, th- there are no shortages of other stories that Bazit could have, could have picked. Just a couple that crossed my desk caught, caught my eye. Uh, the TUC uh, has set out its tech priorities for unions uh, for the year ahead. John Wood has penned an excellent blog. You can get it at digital.tuc.org.uk. Things like software as a service, uh, tech tools for activists, tech tech stacks and shadow IT, mainstreaming digital and trade unions, all really, you know, directly relevant stuff to what all unions are doing or should be doing or soon will be doing on tech. I uh, saw an interesting quote from Steve Gillen, uh, General Secretary of the Prison Officers Association, uh, saying that if they had the legal right to go on strike, they would. And you can understand why, because there are terrible resourcing problems in the prison service. They've got this ridiculous rule that they have to work to 68 years old before they can get their pension. Prison officer at 68? I mean, we've all seen things like time and screws. We know it's not an easy job at all. So... I hope the Home Office or Ministry of Justice, it would be a listening to what to what Steve's saying. And then finally, and sadly, of course, we have to pay tribute to Jack Dromey, who died unexpectedly and early earlier this this week, age of only 73, uh, MP for Birmingham Erdington, former Deputy General Secretary of the TNGWU, veteran of the Grunwick dispute, a, a, a true, a true giant of our our movement. So, you know, thanks, Jack. And and. Rest in peace. Well, that is just about all we have time for on this edition of Union Juice. Thanks so much uh, for listening in. Hope you've enjoyed what you've heard over the last 35, 40 minutes or so. Hope it's kind of made you think, given you food for thought. If you'd like to join the discussion, if you'd like to suggest future guests for the show, if you've got a perspective on any of the things that we've discussed, do let us know. Do join the discussion. We'd love to hear from you. Email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at jewsunion. We'd love to hear from you. While you're thinking about engaging with the show and while you're streaming or downloading it from the podcast platform of your choice, would it be terribly cheeky if we asked you to rate the show for us? Go on, it's got to be worth five stars. That would be tremendously valuable. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much in anticipation of that. As I've mentioned before, there's a companion blog to this episode of Union News, as there is for every episode of Union News. You can find that on the makesyouthink.com website. You go to makesyouthink.com, click on the blogs tab. You will find a blog post with all the background, signposting, links that you could possibly need if you want to follow up any of the issues that any of the speakers have touched on during this program. Just leaves me to say a heartfelt thank you. Thank you to Alice, to Mel, to Bazit, and above all, to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us. We've loved having your company. So until the next issue of Union Jews, this is me, Simon Sapper, saying thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay well, be kind. Solidarity to those in dispute defending their terms and conditions wherever you may be. Take good care, and I'll see you next time on Union Duke. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.